please turn with me in your Bible this morning to Acts chapter 12, as we're reading together verses 1 through 15. Acts chapter 12, and you'll find it on page 1712, 1712 of the church Bible. Most of you are aware that on the Sundays leading up to Easter, we spent our Sunday mornings in the book of Acts. And we're continuing that new series of studies entitled Encore Acts for 2022. And I entitled it Encore because Luke not only writes his gospel, but most of you will be aware that he writes the book of Acts. And so that word Encore, I thought, really in some ways summarized all that Luke is doing when he comes to Acts. He has more to tell us. So that's why it's entitled that strange name, Encore. Acts for 2022. Today we're breaking into the book at chapter 12 at verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. And sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and the light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. And Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself. And said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. And when she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading from God's holy word. Each Friday morning I send out an email to the congregation letting them know what's happening at church over the weekend or the following week or if it's really big over subsequent weeks. And this past Friday I sent out the following story. 
as I often like to begin with something vaguely humorous or odd. And it began, baseball fans across the nation this week were giddy with excitement when an elementary school coach was overheard talking to one of his young players. During the game, the coach called a nine-year-old baseball player aside and asked, do you understand what cooperation is, what a team is? Yes, coach, replied the little boy. Do you understand that what really matters is whether we win or lose, we do it together as a team? The little boy nodded in the affirmative. So the coach continued, I'm sure you know when an out is called, you shouldn't argue or call the coach an idiot. Again, the little boy nodded in the affirmative. The coach continued, And when I take you out of the game so that another boy gets a chance to play, it's not a dumb decision or that the coach is a moron, is it? No, coach. Good, said the coach. Now go over there and explain all of that to your grandmother. (laughs) And of course, we smile when we see that. Because we know that grandmothers can become as competitive as the next person. And some of us, of course, have feisty grandmothers. Or at least that's what we put some of our characteristics down to. I've heard it said, I inherited that from my grandmother. And of course, as we gather for family events and will do for graduations during this month of May and then into July and celebrate Independence Day, families will get together. And as we sit round dinner tables or enjoying barbecue in the backyard, we will be making more memories. And the story we just read, I think, would be remembered by every person there who was actively, fervently, is the word used in Scripture, praying for Peter, knowing that he had been incarcerated, was about to go on trial for his life, knowing that James had already been beheaded by Herod, that was a tense moment. And the release of Peter from prison would be remembered by subsequent generations. And can you imagine the wee girl Rhoda, as she grew up, fell in love, got married, had children of her own, became a grandmother. She would be telling that story again and again and again. And as her grandchildren went for sleepover to grannies, they would say to her, tell us the story about Peter again. And of course, she would. Now as she looks back, she looks back with great affection for all that took place during those days. What a wonderful story to tell. And I suspect most of us, as we get older, say to ourselves, I wish I knew my parents and my grandparents better. I wish I could go back in time and see them as youngsters. And then our imagination goes to another level and say, I wish I was there in Acts that day. Just to stand in the shadows and watch it unfolding and witness God at work in this remarkable manner would have just been spectacular. And the more we grow and mature in our faith, those thoughts come into our mind. And the more we grow and mature in our faith, we also realize this. We realize that growing and maturing and developing your faith is hard work. 
It takes determination. It takes commitment. At times it's sheer grit to hold on and keep going because we know this as we mature in life that in terms of our faith there is no such thing as instant maturity. Intellectual astuteness. Morally flawless. Spiritually wise. We don't instantly become a model of faithfulness and uninhibited faith. It takes time as God begins to refine us and change us and enable us to become more Christ-like. And it's not for the faint-hearted. We don't simply drift from one blessed experience with God to another, to another, to another. We don't. And the young church in the book of Acts was learning all of this as the purposes and plans of God began to unfold in front of them. Now remember the context of the passage. We touched on it a couple of Sundays before Easter Sunday. You had the arrest of the apostles in those early chapters of the book of Acts, in chapters 3 and 4. And they were told to stop living out their faith, stop proclaiming the gospel, and of course they refused. And then in chapter 8, the Jewish authorities had Stephen arrested, had him stoned to death. And now the persecution is increasing. And in the early verses of the passage we read, we noted that when Herod, who was the grandson of Herod the Great, when Jesus was born, this was Herod Antipatas, and he put to death James. Why is that significant? Because, of course, you know that within that apostolic group, there were groups of brothers. There was Peter and Andrew and James and John. This was the James who was the brother to John. He had been beheaded, and the passage tells us quite clearly in verse 3. When he saw, that's Herod, when he saw this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. And it felt inevitably that Peter would end up being beheaded as well. And so they're right in the middle of tough, challenging days. And yet, God was at work in a spectacular fashion. What those early disciples discovered, like thousands on the day of Pentecost, that the God whom they had believed in as they grew up going to the synagogue each weekend and then off to the temple in Jerusalem to offer up sacrifices, to participate in feast days, the God whom their parents and grandparents talked about was not distant, not far off. You no longer had access to him simply because you offered a sacrificial offering or wore certain clothes on certain days, stuck rigidly to dietary restrictions or only celebrated feast days and holidays. What they discovered was this. That with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, God had become personal. They now had an intimate relationship with Him. He who was far off, only known through reciting certain prayers by ritual and rote, that was no longer the case. 
They knew him and knew him intimately. He was dwelling within the heart. He had transformed the soul. And now they had a living relationship with him. And when the gospel was beginning to impact individuals and entire families, the Jewish authorities became jealous. Their influence and power was waning. And that could not take place in their eyes. And so persecution broke out. And that's what was going on here. And of course, when James was arrested and then beheaded, those were difficult days. Can you imagine the violence of such an act? Someone you knew and loved was a good, close friend, had been beheaded. And the church, of course, as the passage tells us, verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Now that term, earnestly, means fervently, passionately. They were crying out to God, almost wrestling with him in their prayers. Father, protect Peter. Keep him safe. Don't let him go the way of Stephen and James. Protect them, please. Please. And you can imagine that urgent pleading in prayer that was taking place. And yet... I imagine at some point, at least in their own minds, quietly as they were praying, they may well have said, what is the point of praying? Did we not pray for Stephen? And it ended in his death. Did we not pray for James? That God would protect him, work miraculously and free him? And he was beheaded. What on earth is going on here? Father, why would you allow this to happen? And you can imagine them praying fervently in the one hand, but quietly in the deep recesses of the mind and soul, saying, is there really any point? And that's the dilemma they find themselves in. And yet, they continue to pray. There are times in our own lives, is there not, when we pray passionately over an issue. Something we want badly for ourselves, for our children, our grandchildren. And there doesn't seem to be an answer. And sometimes the answer is simply no. And it will be many years later before we understand why. But in those difficult, hard days when we're praying and praying and praying and pouring out our hearts, nothing is happening. And we sometimes find ourselves praying, saying, Father, if only you would explain. If only you would write me a note and put it in the mail and simply say, you're not getting this because of this and this and this. Then I would understand. Then I would get it. Then I would grasp it. And I would stop praying in that manner. Especially the moments when we're hurting and things have not worked out the way we have longed for it. But we also know this. That when a four-year-old is playing outside with brothers and sisters and friends in the neighborhood and the four-year-old learning to 
ride their first bicycle comes off and cuts a knee and perhaps skins some fingers, they immediately come running to mom and dad. And if mom and dad get down and look them in the eye and say, Now, don't you remember ten days ago that I explained to you the rationale and the logic behind running and not watching where you're going and not running too fast, do you think that will take away the heart and the pain? No. The four-year-old needs to be hugged, held close, told it's okay, I've got you. They need a mom or dad to kiss those wounds and put a band-aid on the knee that's bleeding. There will come a time to say, next time when you're riding your bike, be careful with. There will come a time to say, don't ride too fast. There will become a time to say, watch where you're going. But in those moments of deepest pain and hurt, what do they need? They need the love of a parent. Likewise for us, even though we are convinced if only he would explain, and yet when he does explain, we are still so wounded, we cannot take it in or comprehend what is happening. We need... His comforting presence, His tender touch, which brings healing and wholeness. And in those moments, our job is to simply rest in Him and hand it over to Him. It's the handing over that's the hard part, is it not? Because as soon as we hand it over to him and as soon as we pray and then we finish our prayers and go about our day, we just go right back over, pick it up and try to solve it ourselves again. The people in that room that day in the house of John Mark and his mom simply had to rest in him. Their prayer would be, thy will be done. And as the story develops, what do we discover? We discover that God answers prayer. He answers prayer in a spectacular fashion. He answers prayer in an almost unprecedented manner. I remember way back in the mid-80s when I was a student at seminary in Glasgow, a fellow student told me it was a Thursday morning that he'd been at an evening service on a Wednesday night. It was a Bible study and it finished with a time of prayer. And he said, after we had some open prayer, and open prayer was that anyone at the Bible study, there was about 12 or 15 folks there, when they finished studying the passage and talking about what the passage meant to them and how did it speak into their lives, they had a time for open prayer and various folks prayed for things that were concerning them. And he said to me, Richard, one of the older men who was there made a reference to a newspaper in his prayer. And that caught my attention. I said, now, what do you mean? He said, well, when he prayed, he referred to the Daily Record, which was a well-known Scottish newspaper. And his prayer went something like this. Lord, you will have read in the Daily Record today that such and such a thing happened. 
And we smile at that because the image in our mind is if God is sitting back, going through the daily record to find out what has happened in Scotland that day. But the serious point to the story was this. He was talking to a friend, someone he loved, someone he believed had so much in common with him. It was that most natural expression, conversational, intimate. Is that what our prayer life is like? That's what was going on here. Deep abiding prayer predicated on a relationship, not on certain words or in rote, but a heart passionate prayer. That's what's going on. Praying without ceasing. And that takes time. And it takes perseverance. E.M. Bounds, in a classic book, Power Through Prayer, writes these words. He writes, our prayers are not measured by the clock, although time is of the essence. The ability to wait and pray reverently is essential to our interaction with God. Rushed prayer can be a damaging thing. Resting in Him, trusting in Him, demonstrating dependency in Him is the great business of interacting with God. Short devotions are the enemy of deep piety. Calmness, stability, fully grasping a situation are never the companions of hurry. Short devotions deplete spiritual vigor, arrest spiritual progress, sap spiritual foundations, blight the root and bloom of the Christian's spiritual life. They are a sure indication of a superficial piety. They deserve... Excuse me, they deceive, wither and disease the seed and impoverish the soil of the soul. We know as adults, you cannot exist off fast food alone. Fast prayers, likewise. The first six Sundays of January, if you remember, we spent some time looking at prayers from the Psalms and some of the great prayers of the Apostle Paul. And during those Sundays, again and again, we came back to the basic principle. And that basic principle was this. That prayer not only is about receiving an answer, but prayer is often about being and becoming. Because God often uses our prayers to shape and fashion us and create within us patience, the ability to persevere, to dig deep, to keep going when others would give up. And it creates character and integrity. And prayer often changes us every bit as much as it does the circumstances we're praying over. That's exactly what we see here in this passage. We see it because notice what happens. Verse 5 again. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. And then we read the night before Herod was to bring him to trial. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. The sentries stood guard at the entrance, and suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. 
And for the next 10 or 15 or 20 minutes, however long it was, the angel touched Peter and said, get up, get dressed. To come out of the prison, a supernatural act of God, miraculous, into the open street, leads him towards the home where they were praying for him, the home of John Mark and his mother. And incidentally, for those of you who teach Sunday school, this is the same John Mark who wrote the gospel. This is the author of Mark's gospel as a younger man, probably his late teens or early twenties at this point. And here you're seeing God at work in spectacular fashion. And Peter himself does not realize what's happening. Ever been involved in prayer? And not fully realizing what's going on? That was the case with Peter. And then eventually, the angel wakes him up, disappears, and he's standing there in the street. He makes his way to the home of John Mark and his mom. As we know, he knocks on the door. And then, I'm absolutely convinced that as Luke is writing this, he's chuckling to himself. Peter goes to the door, he knocks on the door, and there's no response. Because they're inside praying, they can't hear. And he knocks again, no response. He knocks again, and then the young servant girl hears and runs to the door. She says, who is it? He responds, she recognizes his voice, and rather than bring him in, she leaves him in the streets. And she rushes back to tell everyone. And of course, the people inside refuse to believe. They say to her, in fact, in the passage says, they said to her, you're out of your mind. Think of that. This is the people who were fervently, passionately pouring out their heart and soul, asking God to answer their prayer. And when he answers, they refuse to believe. Isn't that something? When he answers, they refuse to believe. They say, this is crazy. How could it possibly be Peter? You're imagining things. You're out of your mind. Why was that their response? Was it that they were so wounded and hurt by the death of Stephen, the beheading of James, that in their minds and in their souls they had already decided it was over? When we pray, we bring it to him, believing, trusting, knowing that he can deal with it. And our prayer is always, Father, thy will be done. Not my will, but thy will be done. Father, if this is what you want, respond. If this is where you are taking me, show me the way. If these barriers you are removing, let it be. But if it is not, let me adjust to your plan. Thy will be done. And that's exactly what was going on here. And there was Peter. A miraculous answer to prayer. And as the passage draws to an end, let me close with an illustration that I used a couple of years ago, but it seemed appropriate this morning to wrap it up. The Jamestown colony 
1609 through to 1610 in Virginia, started with 500 people. And through that winter, there was a drought. Lack of fresh water. The water they did have was combined with salt. It was brackish, unfit for eating. Disease broke out in the colony. And of the 500 who began that winter in late November, early December, by spring and into May and the early days of June, 60 people were left. During the winter, they had prayed and prayed and prayed that God would somehow deliver them. And one morning, late February into early March, Two boats arrived in the horizon. They thought, that's it. The supplies have come from the old world. We'll be able to continue. But both boats had been badly damaged in a storm. They had no extra food. They were hoping that when they arrived, the colonists would feed them. And the gravestones are still there today. You can still see them. And on the 10th of June, they boarded a vessel headed back to Chesapeake Bay with a view of returning to Old England and Europe. But on their way up to Chesapeake, they met a fleet of ships coming in their direction with fresh water and food. They returned to the colony and were able to re-establish it and build from there. Can you imagine what that winter was like as they prayed and longed for God to answer their prayers? And they looked back in time and said, did we not leave the old world to come to this new world with hopes and dreams of a better life? Father, we believed that you were leading and guiding and directing us and it's ended in death and disaster. What on earth is going on? And they couldn't see God at work. But God was building a nation, slowly, surely, but he was also building people. People of character and patience and perseverance. People who would trust him in good days and in bad. The young church in the book of Acts likewise was learning that lesson. That prayer is every bit as much about being and becoming as it is an answer. This morning, if you're going through tough and difficult days, your prayers have been mixed with tears. Please hear this. You can absolutely rest in Him and trust Him. Now, for those of you who inherited your characteristics from a feisty granny, it's going to take a little longer. But you can absolutely trust him in the midst of it all. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this passage of Scripture this morning. We thank you how it speaks into our lives. Enable us, please, this week to remain close to you. To sense your comforting presence, your tender touch, your enabling grace. Strengthen our hearts, renew our minds. Help us to live in the pages of Acts chapter 12. 
and to be reminded again, great is thy faithfulness. Father, bless us, please, we ask. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.